This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we're culture scholars who sometimes think we understand a bit too much about forensic science because of a TV show we once watched. So today we are joined by a special guest, Haley Cullen. Haley is a PhD student and research assistant in forensic psychology at the University of Sydney. Haley, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, firstly, I'd like to thank you um, both. So thank you, Mia and Scott, for hosting me today. And I know this area is probably a little bit out of your comfort zone, so I'll try to make it friendly to the audience, but also hopefully you'll find it really interesting and everyone will learn a little bit more about the the science behind um, these types of shows. So I'm a research student within the Forensic Psychology Lab at the University of Sydney. Um, So I'm a PhD student in Forensic Psychology. And my main research interest is looking at the fallibility of witness memory and particularly also witnesses' attention spans as well, as we know that you need attention in order to remember something. Uh, And what we look at in the Forensic Psychology Lab is the ways in which um, our attention and memory might influence how witnesses and even police officers are perceived and evaluated by jurors during criminal trials. Um, And so that's my research, but I also work as a research assistant. So I do a lot of different studies and I help out on a lot of different research projects, looking at eyewitness memory and all the ways in which we can improve it. And I also volunteer on the Not Guilty Project. So you might have heard of the Not Guilty Project. It's a new initiative as part of um, a collaboration between law and psychology students at the University of Sydney. And what we do with that is we look at possible cases of wrongful convictions from a psychological perspective. So law and psychology students work together um, looking into these cases to see if there's any avenue for appeal. And I work as a case leader, so I help kind of oversee the projects that these students work on. And that's me. That's really interesting. So has that actually led to any sort of appeals yet? Well, it is quite a new project. So it's only been around since the end of 2015. And the process of reviewing a case takes a lot of time. As you can probably imagine, it's a lot of reading, which I'm sure law students are a bit more... Uh, used to than psychology students. We're not, you know, being from psychology myself, it's a lot of reading. But at the moment, we're still in the review process. So still looking through cases, trying to see if there's anything that might cast doubt on a conviction. So it could be that there might be uh, issues with memory, issues with um, police conduct, issues of that kind. So Um, Not just yet, but we're hoping that there'll be a lot of success in the future. Yeah, so like you said, Hayley, uh, this this is definitely quite far outside of our research areas um, as far as the episodes that we've recorded so far for Trope Watchers go. So we're really excited to have you here today. And we'll be looking at crime scene investigation or CSI um, and this related phenomenon of the CSI effect. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So... 
I mean, hopefully everybody has heard of CSI, the, the show. I mean, it came out in the year 2000, and it since it came out then, it's been truly groundbreaking in terms of publicising forensic science to the general public. Um, and what CSI is about is it's a show that's focused around solving criminal cases, so really looking at the criminal investigation process, and it uses what we call forensic science evidence, which uh, I'll try and stick to using th that term, forensic science evidence, for today, but you could also think of it as physical trace evidence, so things like fingerprints, um, DNA, hair fibres, that type of thing that's left at a crime scene. And so in the original series of CSI, it was set in Las Vegas in the US, and Gil Grissom um, is the lead of the crime scene investigation unit at the Las Vegas Police Department. And he leads a group of young forensic scientists uh, who all have specialties in different areas. So some are more specialised in fingerprint analysis, some are more specialised in you know, blood splattering. Um, so they all have these different specialisations. And this series of CSI was one of the most popular shows of its time. So it lasted a full 15 seasons, which, you know, nowadays when we look at Netflix, we don't see many shows lasting that long. So once the original show finished, it led to multiple spin-off shows. So nowadays we have CSI Miami, um, and that's just to name one example. But this overall franchise has... Um, had a viewership of 2 billion people. So across the world, 2 billion people watch one part of the CSI franchise. Uh, and also, I don't know about you both, but when I was probably early teenager, I had a CSI board game, <laughs> which sounds very lame, but I loved it. And this just shows that it's transcended well beyond the TV screen to video games, books, toys, board games, anything like that. So there's been just short of 800 episodes that have been aired across the entire franchise in the past you know, 18 to 20 years. So with that all aside, it's quite impossible to discount the legacy of this show. And of course, probably the most prolific part of this show is that catchy theme song that I'm sure everybody <laughs> knows. <laughs> but this is what the show is about itself. So the show is catchy and it's caught on to the general public in quite an amazing way. So that's a bit about the show, but when the show came out, there was a lot of research that was sparked in this area. So not only did it actually um, engage the general public, but it engaged a lot of researchers in a number of different areas. So psychologists, forensic scientists, medical scientists, lawyers, and um, other legal professionals. And the focus of a lot of this research is what has come to be known as the CSI effect. So pretty straightforward name. Um, you can probably gather from the name itself that it has something to do with CSI, uh, but it's also related more generally to crime fiction television series. So CSI, Law and Order, um, Without a Trace, those types of shows. And this CSI effect is incredibly broad and basically what it entails is the effect that shows like CSI have on the general public's view of forensic science. So in that definition, it is quite broad and viewership of these shows might have a lot of different effects on how 
members of the general public perceive forensic science. But the particular focus of this CSI effect is how the general public are influenced by these shows if they then go on to become jurors in a criminal case, because that's where this effect is most important, is that if there is misunderstandings or if there is an over-exaggeration of this evidence, this forensic science evidence, and jurors are using these misconceptions in criminal trials, then that is where it becomes quite a problem. So hopefully for today we can talk a little bit about the different uh, proposed CSI effects. So what effect are these shows having on the general public and how could this translate into a legal setting? So just on the matter of potential spoilers, uh, this type of show is not really susceptible to that kind of stuff because it is case by the week of the week uh, episodic structure. But just just to ease any potential fears for CSI fans, there will be no um, sort of examples used from overarching stories from the show. So Mia, have you heard of the CSI effect before? Yeah, so I didn't think I had heard of it until I, in, unrelated to this, was going through my PhD notes and realised I'd made notes about the CSI effect a while ago. Uh, but I'll talk more about that a little bit later. Um but in terms of the the basic idea, the premise that the CSI effect is built upon, um, I hadn't heard it called by that name, but it is something I'd kind of thought about before because I'm that person who, I, as many people are, like to bring up, you know, interesting facts in conversations and things like that. And a few times I, I caught myself and I was like, wait a second, I don't know this from my own research. I don't know this because, like, you know, I saw some kind of peer-reviewed literature on it. I know this because... I was watching like House or The Good Wife or something like that. And yeah, so this is, it it actually, to an extent, is a bit of a problem for me because in my own research um, for my PhD, like that involves critiquing narratives presented through uh, biomedicine and medical law. But I don't personally have a degree in law or medicine. So I sometimes feel like I have... um, like I've read something somewhere. Uh, so I'm like, oh yeah, that's something interesting. Like I'll look more into that. And I think it's come from a peer-reviewed publication, but actually it was just something I saw on TV. Uh, I, so the good news is a lot of these shows are well-researched. So it is rare that you'll see something that's just 100% made up uh, for a TV show. But even though I would never commit anything to paper that I didn't have this kind of strong scholarly foundation for, um, I, you know, you don't tend to cite things when you're having a ca- casual conversation with your friends. So I was thinking like, okay, what would happen to me if I ended up on a jury? I can't go through academic databases to base my decision on. What kind of assumptions might I have that actually have their basis in, and we'll be frank here, like they are biased TV shows, even if the point is to be accurate. These are shows that are dramas. They try to be dramatic. So you can have a show that's about forensic evidence, um, but you're still going to need to have like, you kind of need to amp it up because if your show is about forensic evidence, there needs to be forensic evidence in every episode all o- over the place. Um, and that, you know, isn't, I, I don't think is necessarily realistic, but I'm sure Haley, you're going to speak more about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Haley, how realistic are these shows exactly, particularly in terms of how it represents uh, the quality, the quality and quantity of evidence and how it's used. Well, I think Mia raised a really good point then, is that 
it is hard to know where information is coming from that you you think of when you're talking with friends. Is it something that's coming from you know from as PhD students something that you've read, or is it something that's maybe not as factual and based on what you've seen on TV? And it can be really hard to distinguish between the two because our our memory just generally we we confuse things and we get things wrong. So I understand why CSI. And these type of shows focus a lot on forensic evidence because that's the whole premise of the show. But also they do give a biased perspective because they only show you the really, and I'm just going to say the really sexy kind of science. (laughs) Uh, They don't show you all of the behind the scenes, you know, all the administration that goes into this type of work. So so it does, it, it can have the effect of, telling the the general public that this kind of work is always exciting and you're always at the crime scene and always analyzing things and that everything happens in that sequence when it doesn't really happen like that in real life um but the this csi effect uh basically what it gets at is that these shows create an over-exaggerated idea of forensic science evidence that they tell us that Forensic science evidence is always available when it isn't, and that isn't the case. And what they also tell us is that the quality of this evidence is really strong, that it's always going to lead to a conviction. And in in the first season of CSI in particular, almost every single case that's presented results in a conviction from this evidence, which is quite different to what happens in the real world. So what this CSI effect Essentially, and what the proposed CSI effect is, um, the one that's mostly talked about through research, is that by having an over-exaggerated perception of forensic science evidence, that when jurors actually go into courtrooms, they are more likely to acquit a defendant. So they're more likely to, to deliver a verdict of not guilty because the evidence that they're presented with in real life doesn't match with the evidence that they see in these shows. So what I wanted to just go through was a few of the the points that give, I guess, give evidence to this CSI effect. So the, the points that actually suggest this CSI effect actually does occur where people, the actors, jurors, would be more likely to acquit a defendant. And the first thing I wanted to go over was that these types of shows give a very unrealistic expectation of how common this type of evidence is. So you you both would have seen from viewing um, the first season at least that in every single episode there is some form of forensic science evidence. Um, so it's just very convenient that at every single crime scene there's some sort of trace that's been left there. So these shows make out like this evidence is more commonly found than it actually is. So there was actually a paper in 2012 by Lay and colleagues, and they did a a content analysis of CSI to look at this CSI effect. And what they found was that in 85% of the episodes, there was some form of physical evidence that was presented, which is actually a lower percentage than I would have expected given that the the show is about that, right? Um, But what they found was that 
um, when they looked at 51 random episodes from the first six seasons, so this is kind of extending beyond the first season itself, they found that in more than three quarters of all of the episodes, the forensic team were able to find the the physical evidence of the crime, so find any type of physical trace evidence that's at the scene, and they were able to analyse it in over three quarters of these cases. But I guess the point I wanted to make here is that this forensic science evidence is not as easy to come by as it's kind of made out in these shows, is that in a lot of cases of crime, there's actually no forensic science evidence at all. What do you both think about this? Did you did you feel like when you were watching it that there was a lot of uh, too much forensic science evidence or that it was a realistic portrayal of this? I mean, I did find it, again, coming at it from the perspective of someone who doesn't really know from any of my own research or life experience what is realistic, it still felt like there was a lot going on. And I did notice there were times where they used evidence in this very kind of clear-cut way where they said, okay, this has happened, therefore this must be the case. And I would say like most of the episodes, there was an at least one instance of them making this kind of very direct statement where I'm like, is that the only thing that could have happened there? Like, is that definitely there's only one possibility from what you've seen here? Or are there multiple things that could have come on? And I know that, like, you know, you want you want a simple narrative that all viewers can follow, but there was a lot of convenient stuff that was happening, even from someone who, you know, doesn't know that much about this. It still felt a bit convenient watching it. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because another thing I wanted to bring up was the ease at which this evidence is analysed. So they, they also give an unrealistic portrayal, not just about how common it is, but how easy it is to, to be able to analyse it and to, to create a coherent narrative or theory based on it. And I particularly noticed that there were, there were times at which there was a theory that they were just set out to prove. So they, they had an idea based on one thing that they'd found and then from that they developed this entire theory about how the crime must have been committed or the person's motives when you wouldn't really be able to do that in real life just from some simple and sometimes not even very conclusive evidence that's found at a crime scene. So I definitely agree with that as well. And they particularly really exaggerate the ease at which we can analyse this evidence as well. And that that's kind of in the statistics I talked about before, that in you know, 90% of the cases, they're actually able to solve the case through using this evidence. But what I was wondering is how how many days does it take them to solve these cases? And I don't know if both of you noticed this, but when I was listening to the dialogue of a lot of the episodes from the, the first season, was that the case was solved generally in about a day, which <laughs> seemed <laughs> which seemed a little bit unrealistic to me, um, particularly because there was at least one point where one of the forensic scientists said that they only had three hours to be able to solve this case. And even just that amount of pressure might lead to errors in itself, right? But so so most of these cases were solved in just a day or just an overnight where they went to the crime scene immediately after the crime had happened. 
They gathered all the convenient evidence that was there and they analysed it very, very quickly and were able to secure some sort of arrest or um, confession from the, the alleged perpetrator of the crime. So this would really not happen in real life and there have been a lot of uh, papers that have been written on how these shows don't provide us with a realistic portrayal of the amount of time and effort it takes to go through this investigation process from start to finish. So they don't really give you an accurate portrayal of how long it takes to analyse and collect the evidence, how complicated it is to actually concretely analyse your evidence and say for sure what is happening. And they also completely neglect any kind of administration, so any documentation or filing reports or that type of thing. So from what we know of real life cases is that these analyses can actually take a number of weeks to be completed. So it's not just as simple as running a very quick scan through a computer as what has happened in a lot of these episodes in the first season. Um, but if you're watching these shows and you, you take them at face value, you would think that this is a very quick process in real life. So it does give a very skewed perspective on how easy it is for these experts to analyse their forensic science evidence. And what also happens in CSI is that they have, they solve these cases in about one day, but they're also only completing one case at a time. And I'm, I'm not sure if either of you noticed this, but just conveniently, they only had one case to deal with and it seemed you know, the next episode, another case came up and they could work on that. <laughs> and, and that's not how it happens either. But, but in real life, uh, forensic science experts and those that are analysing these types of evidence often have dozens of cases to work on at once. So this means that they're not able to spend that dedicated time solely to, you know, spending their whole day at the crime scene trying to work out what happened but they've actually got a lot of different analyses to do at once, which means that the job is a lot more cognitively demanding, but also that there is more increased room for error in real life if you are dealing with a lot of different crimes and a lot of different analyses at once. There also seem to be a lot of changing of specialties within all of the characters, which did either of you pick up on that in any of your viewings? Yeah, so... I'll talk a little bit more about Grissom later, but he in particular annoyed me <laughs> in just like how he seemed to be an expert in like everything, not just forensic science. He was also like, you know, a behavioral psychologist. <laughs> and like he was, he just knew everything. <laughs> so um, I did wonder, I'm like, well, I mean, I guess as you move on, maybe you are able to, uh, like in the same way that us as researchers, like we've got you know, limited understandings of other areas that aren't directly in our research, but not to the extent that some of these people seem to have, like, really intimate knowledge of lots of different, what I would imagine would be quite distinct branches of this kind of science. Yeah, and they are quite distinct, and that's a good point, is that if we're not experts in a particular area of our research field then sure, we can learn different areas, but the, the stakes for a forensic science expert is a lot higher because if they 
aren't trained in a particular analysis or they're not trained to be able to analyze and interpret particular evidence and that goes to court then that's where their expertise is fundamentally important so yeah for us it's okay but in this show it, it gives a very negative view in a way it gives a the view that these type of experts they're expert just in general but they don't have a particular specialization to stick to so i guess what this all means is that real forensic scientists then they would be dealing with multiple cases that might span across weeks um you know or even months depending on how complicated the analysis is within a really particular type of specialization and it all means that there's a lot more chance of error than what you would come across in CSI so it's not as exact and it's not as accurate as CSI would depict it to be um so not only is there an issue with how common this evidence is in CSI and also how easy it is to analyze but there's also an issue with how strong this forensic science evidence actually is right because and this is i want to be clear that this is not me saying that this evidence is not good because a lot of the time this evidence is a lot more accurate than other forms of evidence like a uh, human memory evidence which you might know is not that great and our memory is quite easily changed and malleable but what these shows what the impression of these shows is is that this evidence will always be really strong and so when it when you get to a courtroom it's going to be um very compelling to jurors that they know how strong this evidence is and that's what they'll be expecting but what you find in most cases is that if there is really strong evidence against someone in real life then usually they're more likely to take a plea deal so the case won't actually even go to a jury at all because the person will just say okay there's a lot of evidence against me there's no way i'm going to get out of this i might as well just take my chances at a shorter sentence so most of the the cases that actually go to trial in real life don't have the strong physical evidence that these shows actually would depict is is there So what you usually get when you go to a trial uh is that there might not be any physical evidence at all because like I said there are types of crimes where there might be no physical traces or forensic science evidence or you have very weak evidence that's at trial so evidence that's not really tying somebody to a crime and so that's where you you might get this CSI effect where the jurors are left with um pretty weak evidence in comparison to what they're used to by viewing these shows and what that means is that they might actually have to move their focus to other forms of evidence such as testimonial evidence memory evidence and that type of thing so that's just some of the things that see the the series itself actually provides a very unrealistic expectation about but another thing it provides an unrealistic expectation about which i think is probably the most heavily misunderstood is how objective forensic science evidence is because what do you both think do you think that this type of evidence is objective or subject to bias <laughs> 
Well, I mean, again, this is coming from my own research area, which is not on forensics, but is on science. Um, and my, my research is basically all about how it's all biased and it's, it's not very objective at all. Uh, so I would say not objective coming from, from my area. <laughs> Well, from my background, objectivity as a concept is kind of um, iffy in and of itself. So I would go ahead and say no, just based on that, because uh, uh, by that, by that, I mean, um, everything we think, feel, behave, so on and so forth is influenced by our cultural circumstances through norms and stuff. So in in that respect, (laughs) yeah, I would be very hesitant in saying any sort of interpretation of anything is Um, objective in that sort of classic scientific neutral sense if that makes sense yeah for sure and I mean that's that's exactly the problem with these shows is that you it's a side of the analysis of this evidence that you don't actually see all that often but I mean with this type of evidence it's prone to contamination much like other forms of evidence are anyway so I mean I noticed that at the end of the pilot episode uh, there was a crime scene that was not even caught enough from the public. So anybody could come in and ta- not tamper with it, but anybody could come in and contaminate the evidence that's there if it's not properly cordoned off. Um, and also a thing I noticed in the pilot episode again, so that they weren't off to a very good start here, so it seems, but in the pilot episode when they they made a note about the contamination of of a crime scene. So you know, they talked about the importance of making sure that there was no contamination, but the shop owner who was ab- who owned the shop that was robbed was just casually walking around the shop as they were investigating and collecting evidence. <laughs> I noticed that. So yeah, okay. Okay, I'm glad because I just find found that very ironic that they made this big point about it and then he was just able to be there and just do his own thing and and even little things like that has has the capacity to contaminate an entire crime scene so I thought that was a bit odd but also what and I think this is what you touched on before Scott is that there will always be biases in how we analyze things and how we interpret things and particularly we have to take into account that at the forefront of all of these analyses, even though they might be very scientific analyses, we have humans there that are analysing them. And those humans then have to go maybe into court and provide some sort of testimony about the evidence that they gathered and how they analysed it. So there's still that element of human bias that can seep in anyway. And just as a final bit on the kind of issues with CSI and how it's related to this CSI effect, I think this is an important one as well, is that there's a complete ignorance of any other forms of evidence in these shows. And like what I said before, it's really important that if the forensic science evidence is circumstantial and it's not directly tying somebody to a scene of a crime then we actually need some other form of evidence to complement this as well. So we really need the testimony of someone that was a witness or a victim to be able to corroborate that forensic science evidence. So if you have a, for example, if you have a witness who 
can point to the person that's on trial and say, this is the perpetrator of the crime, I remember them clearly, then that is a much more direct link than the forensic science evidence is to this person's involvement. And I don't want to touch too much on the issues with memory evidence and that type of thing because it is something that isn't really brought up much in CSI at all. But we need some other form of evidence as well. And yet all of these CSI cases really only focus on the forensic science and that's kind of the hero in all of these cases. So what I've mostly covered for this, this first part is to talk about the the idea that the CSI effect is based upon jurors going into these criminal cases with these unrealistic expectations that just aren't being met by the evidence that they're being given in a number of ways. And that what a lot of the research says about this is that that leads to a larger acquittal rate. So where jurors will find a defendant not guilty rather than guilty because this evidence doesn't scrape up. But I want to make clear that this is just one of the potential CSI effects. And there's actually six supposed CSI effects, which range from actually finding the opposite, where just having this forensic evidence means that people, and particularly jurors, they're more likely to convict someone if there is DNA evidence compared to any other form of evidence that's available. So there is research that's also found the opposite. So it might bias jurors towards a conviction uh, regardless of how strong the evidence is, which kind of begs the question then is that would we rather have the CSI effect where an innocent person is put into jail because they're more likely to be convicted based on this evidence or where we have a guilty person walking free because the evidence isn't scraping up to the general public's expectations of it based on these shows. So it's one of those age-old debates which is, well, which of these CSI effects is actually true? Is there a combination? Are they both happening depending upon the case? And the second part is which CSI effect is more preferable to have in society because there's good and bad consequences to either depending on the guilt of the actual person in the case. So I think that's a really important thing to note. Um, And that there are other CSI effects. There's some that are actually really good. So um, view it like CSI as a show makes people more interested in forensic science, which means that we've seen a rapid increase in the amount of enrollments to these type of courses, which is a good thing to get people interested in it. But I'm going to leave it there with all the different types of CSI effects because I think what we've talked about so far is really getting at the crux of what some of the misconceptions are about forensic science based on viewing shows like CSI and I think that's a good way to really get behind where the issues in these type of crime fiction shows lie. Yeah so I did mention earlier that I thought I hadn't heard of this CSI effect before but it turns out I had because I had written notes in my own words on them in my to be fair like very very extensive PhD notes that I just (laughs) then wiped from my memory. Um, So then I was going back over all of those notes uh, to start planning a new chapter and I found these notes on the reverse CSI effect. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. So um, 
this was specifically into the uh, phenomenon of cellular chimerism. Um, and there's an episode in CSI that I haven't actually watched. It's from season four. Uh, and apparently the premise of this is a man rapes a woman, uh, but the DNA evidence that they get in the rape kit doesn't match the rapist's DNA. So to kind of explain this, I'll just talk briefly about the science behind it. So je- Generally, you know, we in kind of the everyday world think of humans as having a single set of DNA and it's unique to us and nobody else has it. And that's why this evidence is so concrete. We're talking before about objectivity and bias. It's like, no, this is objective science. We have our one set of DNA. Um, But humans can contain more than one set of DNA inside our bodies. And like increasingly we're seeing this. The most common reason that this comes up is... um, either the result of something like an organ transplant um, or even more commonly, or at least commonly because it's easier to test for, is um, pregnancy. So the human body will literally contain the cells of another human inside of them. There is most likely a much larger population of chimeras in the world than we realize at this stage. But the most common way to test for chimerism is to test for a Y chromosome in uh, the body of someone who is biologically XX. And even then it's like this kind of complex thing because we're, we're assuming that humans are, you know, XY or XX and science is increasingly showing us that in many cases, that's just not how it turns out. So we see that these fetal cells um, from a fetus, whether or not that fetus was carried to term, can stay in the body. So obviously, you know, if you've got someone who um, has XX as their chromosomes and then they at some point become impregnated with a fetus that has XY chromosomes, if in 20 years time we see a Y chromosome in that maternal body were like okay well that person's a chimera because we knew before they were they were xx so this is kind of the most common way that we see this we don't really know to what extent it happens um some people are even speculating that you know potentially we could have non-human dna in our bodies so for example if you share a bed with your pet at some point possibly you're sharing dna with them if you have sex with someone you might be sharing dna with them so the science is still developing in this area but Why this is interesting is from reading the CSI episode synopsis, the science in that episode seems legit. Like, again, I haven't seen the episode, but the synopsis seems pretty accurate. We know it's absolutely possible. And there's one instance in particular that I think is really interesting. I don't think it went to court, um, but it kind of shows where this could take us in the real world. So a woman named Lydia Fairchild lost government assistance. Um, And she was threatened with having her children taken away from her because she was tested as not being um, the biological mother of those children, even though she claimed that she was. Uh, Her birth certificates, sorry, the birth certificates of the children claimed that they were her children. Her OBGYN claimed that she delivered these children. Uh, But the DNA evidence looked to say that they were not her children. So there was this assumption that DNA evidence is objective and infallible. Therefore, she must be lying. This respected medical professional must be lying. The hospital must be covering it up or, you know, to whatever extent, because the DNA evidence doesn't lie. Um, And it was only really realized when someone else who was also chimera, like, you know, they kind of put two and two together and was like, oh, 
you know, I'm a chimera. That's why what's actually happening is the DNA that's been tested is only one set of DNA inside of her body. And there was other DNA inside of her body that did show her to be the biological mother of these children. So we're seeing here a case, like a real life case, where potentially if it had gone further, that could have actually ruined this person's life because people are trusting this supposedly objective science over respected persons and respected institutions. And this is pretty consistent with the fears that we've been talking about so far with the CSI effect. Um, But then with this CSI episode... That's where it gets more complicated because this episode's out there now. So the general public is aware of chimerism or microchimerism. So the fear of this reverse CSI effect is basically that once the general public understand that these kind of obscure, um, and again, you know, arguable how obscure this is, but theoretically very rare things can occur, that could make someone be more likely to um, actually say, Yes, I think that person's guilty because this DNA evidence that exonerates them uh, isn't valid because that person could be a chimera. We don't know that they're not a chimera. Therefore, do we really need to pay attention to this DNA evidence? I know that DNA evidence can be wrong. So there's all, this is like a whole other phenomenon of like this particular episode reducing faith in the evidence in a very specific circumstance. Well, yeah, I mean, with, with that it kind of works in the opposite way then because the whole point about the CSI effect is that it's having this over-exaggerated or this higher expectation of the type of evidence um, like forensic science evidence. And, And DNA evidence is probably the gold standard evidence that there is, right? There was a, there was a survey that found that most responders or most respondents of this survey believe that DNA evidence is very reliable. So, and this was in 2010. So even in recent years, we're seeing that people are increasingly putting faith in DNA evidence. So, and when I was reading about um, the reverse CSI effect, I came across this CSI episode as well. So what they said is that after this season four episode aired with this Chimera case, there was this huge public response to this particular episode. And that's just an indication of well, the power of you know this pop culture and these crime fiction shows, but that it is starting to actually potentially change views about DNA evidence as well. So I'm sure that if, if we actually start to see more science like this that's coming out with um, these you know, real-life cases, that we could actually see the opposite thing where it is something that um, particularly jurors are having very little faith in the system. And I also think what will happen is that we'll get to a point where defense attorneys in defending their client will actually be, it'll be a lot harder for them to defend their clients if the prosecution are able to argue that, well, actually it could be a case of this person being um, a chimera because they their DNA isn't the same. So it's going to make the prosecution's case a lot easier if there is inconsistent DNA matches. It might make the defense's case a lot harder, but we don't even know the exact extent to which this occurs. And I think that's a lot of what the science is saying is we don't know how common this is. So I think it, it definitely has the potential to change the way the CSI effect works. 
But but what I also want to note is that DNA evidence has become so pivotal in wrongful convictions is that if we look at the Innocence Project from the United States, they use DNA evidence solely to overturn usually historical convictions that have been made well before DNA testing was able to be done to the to the to the caliber that it's being done now. But de- using this DNA evidence as part of the Innocence Project and related wrongful convictions and exoneration projects across the world is that if we start to lose faith in DNA evidence, we also lose faith in how good these exoneration projects are working. So Haley, how realistic is this premise of the CSI effect? Is there any evidence out there to support that this is a genuine phenomenon? That's a great question and one that it's quite hard to answer because with this CSI effect, I mean, in the name, you, you would want to think that it's a byproduct of viewing CSI and these related shows. But the, the findings about what's driving the CSI effect are actually quite mixed. And firstly, there's mixed findings on what the CSI effects are. So like we said, there's six different types and in different research studies, there's been different CSI effects themselves. But what a lot of research recently has been looking at is, is this a product of viewing shows like CSI and being heavily invested in these shows, or is it being driven by something else entirely? And, and there's been show, um, there has been research that's looked at like surveying potential jurors and members of the general public. And when you look at this survey data, there's this mixed finding again that People, in some cases, people who watch more CSI and related shows like that, they often have higher expectations about forensic science evidence and DNA evidence. Um, But also you can find that their expectations about evidence in general is just higher. Um, But then there's other surveys that have shown no differences between those who watch a lot of CSI and those who don't on how they perceive this evidence. So it's a bit mixed in that respect. And also the empirical findings, so the research studies that have been done have shown very much the same mixed bag where people who watch more fictional crime shows might be more likely to acquit, um, you know, know, like a fake mock trial. Uh, So if, you know, you give them a fictitious trial to read through and you, or to view a fake trial and then you show them um you know forensic evidence or not and that type of thing what you find is that there are cases where if you watch more csi you're more likely to acquit a defendant than if you watch less uh fictional crime shows so even people who watch more documentary type crime shows like making a murderer forensic files they might be more likely to give a verdict Um, So you find this kind of difference between the type of show you're watching, whether it's fictional or not. But there's also findings that have found, or there's also studies that have found there's no differences in the type of verdict that viewers and non-viewers of CSI reach. Samia, this was your first time watching CSI, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so as someone with a limited understanding of forensic science, if I could put it that way. <laughs> how did how did you find that depiction of how that sort of evidence is used in the show? Yeah, so 
my research occasionally overlaps with the science in shows like CSI, uh, but obviously it doesn't have the depth uh, that it would have, or I don't have, I guess, the depth of knowledge of someone who studies forensics as like kind of their primary uh, research area. Um, but I do find it interesting watching shows like CSI. It's like when you watch something like House and like I can sometimes spot the science and be like, yep, that's technically accurate, but possibly unrealistic and how frequently <laughs> these particularly rare phenomena pop up. Um, but there was one moment that particularly annoyed me in watching CSI for the first time. And it was in episode two, uh, the episode Cool Change. So Gil Grissom, who I mentioned earlier, particularly annoys me. Uh, he was examining the body of a victim who had fallen from a building and he declared that it is definitely homicide. And his reasoning for that is that the victim was wearing glasses. And because suicide is obviously a cowardly act, anyone who wanted to commit suicide would remove their glasses first so they couldn't see their death. So there are so many problems with this. Um, first of all, it's... It's not either suicide or homicide. Those aren't the only two options as to why someone could fall out of a building. It could have been an accident for one. Like it could have been someone we're seeing increasingly people doing stupid stunts and losing their grip and falling. So like these aren't the only two possibilities. Um, and then, you know, without even going into that whole cowardly act thing and would taking off your glasses really stop you from getting the full image that you are falling to your death? I'm not convinced of either. Um, but I wanted to get back to that idea of specialty. So Grissom is a forensic entomologist. He studies bugs, essentially, <laughs> to put it in like the most basic terms. And he's there making this like sweeping statement about, yep, this is a homicide investigation we're now doing uh, because of this like behavioral thing that he seems to have deducted <laughs> with the only evidence being that he was still wearing glasses. So, I mean, I guess the way that I mean, if I'm thinking about my impression of CSI as a whole in terms of like the CSI effect, because, it, you know, absolutely, <laughs> I watched probably more episodes than I needed to to prep for the episode, like this podcast episode, because I was like, it is pretty addictive to watch these kind of shows. Uh, but if we're talking about in terms of the CSI effect, then... Yeah, like all of this stuff, this all could be technically true. All of these assumptions could technically be true in this particular instance. Um, but I suppose the premise of the CSI effect is that if audience assume that these marginal situations and assumptions are the norm, then that does have the potential uh, for actual harmful consequences. I think that that's a really good point because a lot of the viewers of CSI this is the only type of forensic, well, this is the only type of exposure that they're getting to this forensic science evidence. And so if they're not getting any other information or, you know, a, a better idea of how it works, then they're probably going to take it at face value and they're going to think that it's an accurate portrayal. So they're not going to know that Grissom's completely out of his depth in what he's saying and that, you know, he's working in a basically completely opposite type of forensic science. But as naive observers, it can have these really negative consequences because 
these marginal situations won't appear as marginal. They'll appear as something that is quite possible based on what's shown in these shows. Because shows like this and, and shows that are similar in nature, they always give you these really absurd situations because every episode has to be different and fun and exciting. But a naive observer is not going to know that. And it, it, that's when it can have these really negative consequences if they take these views and these examples of episodes into a courtroom if they're a juror. Yeah, okay, so I'm thinking about cause and effect here, and I'm wondering if there is any sort of alternative explanations for how these kind of various effects, these various kinds of CSI effects can be caused, or is it just watching this specific show called CSI? Yeah, well, the name itself is... You know, when you hear of it, you think, okay, it's people who watch CSI. That must be, you know, all of those fanatics of CSI or the issue here. But I guess the problem we have with really identifying the cause is that when we're conducting research into this, it's very complex phenomenon, first of all. But if we want to do very strong research in a lab where we can control for everything and get a really clear idea of what's happening we often find is that we use, um, well, we don't use real criminal trials. We often will use kind of a, a fictitious scenario where no one gets convicted and there's no consequences. There's no real, there's nothing real about the situation. And, and what that means is that we might not get the same type of understanding about the CSI effect as what we would get in the real world because we might actually find that real jurors will respond and make decisions in a different way to those that are just coming in as a mock juror where the, there's no consequences for their actions. But then we also have the other issue where we can look at real juries and we can try to analyse patterns in the decisions of real jurors, but we can't really even be sure what we're looking at when we've got so many factors in a trial that could influence a verdict. Could be that there's the trials are different lengths or the legal teams present the evidence in different ways or the jurors are just different in themselves. And so in this type of research, we're kind of at a crossroads as to which is the best method to take. Is it, is it better to do this lab research that is highly controlled or to do this juror research where it's more realistic, but we're not really getting a good understanding of what's driving any of the effects? And so that, that's just the, the methodological issues we have with really working out if it's viewership of these shows or if it's actually driven by something else entirely. Um, there is speculation though that, and a lot of researchers kind of pointed to the idea that maybe you don't have to be a viewer of these types of shows, but maybe just the understanding of technology's advancements is enough to drive the CSI effect. So I mean, we know how quickly technology has changed. And, and what we know is also that what we were capable of analysing from, you know, if we talk about DNA in particular, what we were capable of analysing 10 years ago is not even, would not even be admissible in court now because we have advanced so much in how deep we can go into a DNA analysis that 10, what we could do 10 years ago would not even be acceptable now. 
But, but this whole idea of technology, that could be what drives the effect, that it doesn't matter what shows you watch. We all see the news. We all know how technology is advancing and taking the world by storm. And just that in itself might drive this effect. Okay, so given all that we've sort of discussed today, where does this actually leave us going forward? Oh, well, so I mean, what I firstly want to just say to conclude is that I don't want to give the impression that this forensic science evidence is not good. I mean, if we think, if we compare it to other types of evidence, and you know, the, the most common comparison we have is memory evidence and human memory evidence in particular, is when we compare the two of them, there are similar issues with both of them. So there's contamination issues, there's biases, there's all of those types of things. But when we compare it to that, we can kind of understand why forensic science evidence is treated in a lot of a, is in a much higher regard than than memory evidence in particular. And like I said before, is if we look back to um, wrongful convictions, which of course is you know something that's being given a lot more focus in news and you know in pop culture itself, but. When we look at wrongful convictions, how we actually go about exonerating somebody is through DNA evidence. So that's the one system in which most of these projects across the world operate against. And the Innocence Project, which was the kind of the well, the Innocence Project in the US is the was the first of its kind to look at these wrongful convictions. And they have exonerated over 350 individuals through DNA evidence, solely through DNA evidence. And, and this is only just going to get higher. So this is really just the start of the work that they do. And this, you know, I was recently reading a book about, I'm not sure if you, I mean, you're podcasters, so you've probably heard of the serial podcast, I would, I would assume. But I read a book that was written by, um, so Adnan, the, the main person in the case who's potentially been wrongfully convicted um one of his good friends wrote this book about his story and kind of talked about a lot of the facts that the serial podcast didn't really cover and Rabia who wrote the book she talked through some of the statistics of this innocence project and I wanted to give her credit because the way she's phrased these statistics really brings to light how problematic this whole issue of wrongful convictions is and so what she said is that the Innocence Project claims that it's possible for 5% of America's prison population to have been wrongfully convicted, right? And if this is the case, then that means that if you look at the number of um, the number of people who have been incarcerated in America, and that's quite a high number in itself, you see that there's probably about 100,000 prisoners currently sitting in jail who have actually been wrongfully convicted. So... That's quite a crazy statistic when you think about how, you know, the weight of the situation is that some of these people have spent 10 years in jail, some have spent almost their whole lives in jail, and some of them have even been on death row. And if the only thing that we can currently use is DNA evidence to overturn these convictions, then we cannot dismiss the importance of this evidence. So so I, I no way want to say that this forensic science evidence is not good and in these cases, it's doing a lot for kind of balancing the scales um, of these miscarriages of justice. And at the University of Sydney here, my supervisor, Dr. Selene Van Gold, 
she's actually created a very similar project um, like the Innocence Project and it's called Not Guilty. And this project actually assesses potential cases of wrongful conviction but looks at it through a psychological perspective. So we're trying to kind of understand some of the issues that there might be with DNA and forensic science evidence and focus more on the psychology behind these wrongful convictions. So hopefully soon, once this project kind of, you know, really kicks off, we can move away from just using DNA evidence in these wrongful convictions and we can also start to use some other forms of evidence to overturn them as well. So what I wanted to just end on is that these shows Yes, there, you know, there are some issues with how accurate they portray forensic science evidence in the real world, but like we've touched on in this episode already is that these shows are really fun to watch. So they're addictive, they really kind of keep you on the edge of your seat in some cases, but I don't want people to think that these are not the type of shows that they should be watching, but just to to really lower your expectations about the quality of this evidence in real life and how available it is and how objective it is. And to just keep in mind that shows like CSI and other crime fiction shows are fictional. Like that's the whole point is that if you do ever come, if you do ever encounter any part of the legal system, so as a juror most likely, but in other shapes and sizes too, it's just important to, to be skeptical of these shows and to not take everything you see at face value. I mean, educate yourselves on the, those documentaries that are out there that, that will tell you a different side of the story. And hopefully by doing that, you won't fall victim to the CSI effect. Okay, Haley, thank you so much for joining us. This is a really, really fascinating uh, subject and it really goes to the heart of what we actually do here at Trope Watchers, what our purpose is. I can't think of any or many better examples of why pop culture matters than this sort of influence of the CSI effect on our processes of criminal trials in the courtroom, like these high stakes settings. So thank you so much for bringing your expertise to the show. Not a problem. Happy to be here. And thank you both so much for having me. For further information on Haley's research and work, you can contact her via her email address or alternatively, you can follow her at Twitter. For information on the work of the university's forensic psychology lab and Not Guilty, the Sydney Exoneration Project, visit their websites. All these links will be in the description for this episode. If you're a fan of Trope Watchers, check out our sister podcast, A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also check out our website, www.tropewatchers.com, for all episodes, extra content, or to download an RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatchers. And you can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatchers. You can also email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we are your tropewatchers. Watchers.